Hello and welcome to Power Problems, a podcast from the Cato Institute where we offer a skeptical take on U.S. foreign policy and discuss some of today's big questions in international security with guests from across the political spectrum. I'm Emma Ashford. And I'm Trevor Thrall. Arguments about the Iraq War loom large over pretty much every foreign policy debate in this town. Whether it's falsified intelligence, individual culpability, or the wisdom of the next military intervention, and there's always a mixed military intervention, we always seem to come back to talking about Iraq. Um, it's been particularly true in the Trump administration, not least because some of the players, people like John Bolton, are the same, and the administration's hostility towards Iran in particular is well known. It sometimes seems like history might be repeating itself. Many fear a push from this administration for a new Middle Eastern regime change war, just like Iraq. So joining us today to talk about the Trump administration's foreign policy, particularly its Iran policy, is Colonel Lawrence Wilkerson. He's a really interesting history on these issues. He's a retired army officer who served as an assistant to Colin Powell and even helped him to prepare that infamous briefing on Iraqi WMD to the UN Security Council. In recent years, however, he's been a relentless critic of the war in Iraq and of U.S. foreign policy in the Middle East, more broadly. Larry, thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. So as always, we'll start with a bit of news discussion before we get into our main topic for the day. And I wanted to start with ISIS, which is uh, somewhat related to the Iraq war. Um, but in this case, it's come up in the news again because it turns out Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi, the so-called caliph of ISIS, he's actually alive. We got a new video of him this week praising recent bombings in Sri Lanka. So despite the territorial defeat of ISIS, no one was particularly sure what had actually happened to Baghdadi. What does his return mean for us, for U.S. policy in general? Good question. I'm I'm of the opinion that individuals don't matter very much, um, uh, whether it's the president or uh, prime minister or the one, two or three, you know, leading person of a terrorist organization. And I suppose it matters when you're starting one, a charismatic leader is obviously more likely to get something off the ground. But you know, once you're ongoing, I mean, is Baghdadi such a genius that it matters if it's him versus the next guy up? Uh, to me, not very much. I tend to agree with that. Um, as a matter of fact, I was just down in Asheville, North Carolina doing a, uh, a labor of love fighting torture. Uh, I was doing it through a North Carolina commission of which I'm a member, which is trying to bring the North Carolina government up on charges of torture, war crimes, and so forth, because the CIA used a taxpayer-funded airfield in North Carolina as one of its principal nodes for the rendition, interrogation, detention program, the torture program. And as we talked about that, um, David Crane, one of the commission members with whom I shared responsibilities, and a former judge from the Sierra Leone Tribunal, who actually was at least partly responsible for Samuel Taylor's bring, be, being brought to the uh, International Criminal Court. David Crane said, is Osama bin Lama winning? That was his summary of the question you just asked about the tragedy of Iraq and the catastrophe of the United States is perpetrated there. Is Osama bin Laden winning? He's dead. Amin al-Zawahiri is now in charge of al-Qaeda. And as you pointed out, ISIS is still alive and breathing. There are probably, as Ali Soufan has pointed out, more terrorists in the world today with a global capability, that is to say they could strike us if they wanted to, than there were on 9-11. So one has to ask what Donald Rumsfeld asked the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff in 2003. Tell me, General Myers, 
how we are winning if every time we kill one of them, we grow 10 more. Yeah, and that's a really great point. Um, And, you know, it's something we haven't really talked about in Power Problems much, but the fact that there are now a bunch of ISIS detainees, and and obviously Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi has at least so far avoided that fate, but the fact that there are a bunch of detainees in Kurdish custody, in US custody, in the region, opens up all of these questions again. And there's been some reports that the Trump administration is considering sending some of these people to Guantanamo Bay, that problem that the Obama administration had sort of hoped that it could solve by closing it. It looks like we're getting a new generation in instead. I was was asked the question by one of the audience members, did I think that we had closed the door on torture? And sadly, I answered, absolutely not. There's no question in my mind that we would bring it back. Polls across this country consistently show at least 50 to 52, 53 percent of Americans are in favor of it unless you tell them graphically that torture doesn't work, torture is immoral and ethical and so forth and so on. It breaks the UN convention, our own domestic law and so forth. And then you can swing five or six percent over to your side and maybe get a majority against it. But you bring another terrorist attack, we'll go right back to torturing again. Well, uh, that's not exactly a hopeful note, but um, hopefully we can find some other hopeful notes here today. Um, So our second story of the the week is a a really bizarre story that showed up in foreign policy um, a couple of days ago. And it's about a far-right party in Spain. Uh, The party's called Vox. Um, That's not the news outlet. It's totally distinct. Um, But the article is basically about how Vox is receiving funding from an Iranian exile group known as the Mujahideen Kalk, the MEK. And they're best known for their giant rallies where they promise to overthrow the government in Iran. They have people like Rudy Giuliani and John Bolton in attendance there. Um, and it's really kind of interesting because these are very strange bedfellows, a European far-right party and sort of this Iranian exile dissident movement, which, to be frank, is often funded by the Saudis these days. What do we think of this pairing? The MEK for a long time was characterized, I think correctly, as one of the most vicious terrorist groups in the world. We had them on the terrorist list. Um I even think John Bolton had association with the MEK while they were still on that list. I wish I could prove it. Dexter Filkin's article in The New Yorker uh, recently indicated such, but Dexter didn't go far enough to say that that was the case. But they have paid Bolton and Giuliani and a number of other people a lot of money uh, in order to speak before them, in order to advocate their case and so forth. And they've mostly been whitewashed and resurrected as a group like Chalabi's Iraqi National Congress, for example, though I don't think the INC was ever that bad. Um, uh, But they are now being suggested, for example, as a potential government to replace uh, the theocracy in Tehran, which I find even more ludicrous than the idea that Chalabi was going to replace Saddam Hussein in Iraq. It's a very vicious group. It's a cult. And if anything, it's a terrorist cult. Yeah. When I see that story, it just makes me think there's nothing new in foreign policy because this just smells a lot like the conservatives reaching out to right-wing parties and militias in Central America during the Reagan administration. This is just the Reagan doctrine writ, you know, again for the next generation. And the idea that, you know, neocons will partner with any crazy group that 
can help them sow division and and overturn communists and socialists other places, uh, it's always a bad idea. It's always the, a blunt instrument and not the sneaky, clever trick they seem to think it is. Uh, and you know, just from a sort of a moral standpoint, if, if that doesn't bother you, you know, personally hanging out, supporting, funding people who murder other people, um, geez, you know, and we're gonna taxpayers are gonna pay these guys salaries. That's to me, it's fairly outrageous. In 2003, 2004, when we had a problem with them in Iraq, because we forget sometimes that uh, Saddam Hussein used them because they were viciously opposed, bloodily opposed, brutally opposed to the regime in Tehran. Um, when we had them in Iraq, we didn't know what to do with them. They were armed and they were roaming around Iraq. Donald Rumsfeld finally made up his mind, got them north of Iraq in a little little village up there near Tikrit, and essentially put them in a concentration camp and disarmed them. <laughs> They ended up in Albania after that, I think. They've had a very strange journey into Europe. And then, as you, as you mentioned, they were taken off of the U.S. terror watch list in 2012 after a very extensive, very expensive lobbying campaign here in D.C. So I, I'm personally a lot more concerned about their ties with this administration than I am with their ties with the Spanish political party. But it's still just a very strange story to emerge in the last couple of weeks. So our main topic for the day is, um, call it Trump, Iran, and the legacy of Iraq, right? Um, and I wanted to start by asking you about an article that you wrote last year that was published in the New York Times. Um, and you basically talked about your experiences in the run-up to the Iraq war. The article was titled, I have helped to sell the false choice of war once and it's happening again. Um, and I wondered if you could perhaps talk us a little through your thought process in writing that article. How did your experiences in the run-up to the Iraq war shape your approach to the way the Trump administration is doing policy today? Strangely enough, though I would be I, I would say that George W. Bush, particularly in his second administration, figured out how to be president. Um in his first administration, he was extraordinarily inexperienced and he trusted his vice president to fill in the most uh, possibly dangerous gap in his experience, national security. So what happened with regard to that was a march to war that was inexorable. And yet at any point in time, the things that we know today were, were staring at us, not in a composite form, but in individual areas they were looking at us. For example, Hans Blix was telling Colin Powell in his office, you give me more time and I'll be able to relatively guarantee you whether he has weapons of mass destruction or not. That's the reason we went to the UN in November, November the 8th, as I recall, 2002 and got a resolution 1441, which was 15 to nothing. We got a, a unanimous vote for that resolution. And we well thought inspectors were going back in and that we had at least a reasonable chance of eliminating the possibility of a war if they found what Hans Blix thought they were going to find. And Mohammed al-Baradeh was saying the same thing. So then Dick Cheney goes and gives the speech at the Veterans for Farm Wars uh, and, and essentially says inspectors aren't going to prove anything. It's not going to do anything. It's not going to help at all. Um, we had other remarks by Cheney as well to that effect. So what I meant in the op-ed I wrote for the New York Times was that some of the same characters, certainly the same music, the same sheets of music, the same song, the same uh, inexorable march towards war with very flaky intelligence and some assertions about the reasons for that war. Look at what we have now, for example, were taking place again. What we have now is we have – 
Secretary Pompeo, having as much as asserted to the Congress that there's no necessity to go back to that Congress for a resolution for war, should we want to use the military instrument against Iran? Because they've connected them now with al-Qaeda. And that means the original AUMF, authorization for the use of military force post 9-11, is now impactful with regard to Iran. We have also said that Iran has significant contacts with al-Qaeda, which was Powell's most powerful message to the American people. Let me just tell you how that message survived in Powell's presentation. On the third day, as we were getting ready to do a real rehearsal, Powell took me aside in the national intelligence spaces up on the seventh floor at Langley. And he he literally accosted me, never done that before. He grabbed me and he put me in a seat and he closed the door. No one else was in the room. And he said, we're alone in this room, aren't we? And I looked at him. I said, it is the CIA, Mr. Secretary. <laughs> he said, ah, I want to take all that stuff about terrorism and Saddam Hussein's connections with it out because it stinks. He didn't say stinks. He said some really worse words than that. Uh, I, he, I think he thought I was going to object. I didn't. I said, okay, let's take it out. I think it stinks too. So we went to Lynn Davidson, who was putting together the presentation, and we said, take it all out, Lynn. Within 30 minutes, what I didn't note at the time I was talking to Lynn, it was John McLaughlin, the deputy DCI, was standing at the door, leaning against the door jamb. He disappeared. 30 minutes later, we resumed the rehearsal in the DCI's conference room, and Tennant gets up, ostensibly to go take a phone call. Tennant comes back and sits down. I'm on one side of Powell. Tennant's on the other side. John McLaughlin is sitting sort of obliquely. Condi Rice is there. Steve Hadley's there. Rich Armitage is there. We're all in the room. And Tennant drops a bombshell on Powell. He says, and this is a direct quote, we have just learned from interrogation of a high-level al-Qaeda operative about significant contacts between al-Qaeda and the Mukhabarat in Iraq, the secret police including the Mukhabarat training al-Qaeda operatives in how to use chemical and biological weapons. Powell turned to me and said, put it back in, Larry. That's how we got that stuff back into the presentation. Later, August, months later, we learned that that information came from interrogation in Egypt of an al-Qaeda operative who was waterboarded. Cigarettes were used on him. Electric prods were used on him. A week after he gave that information, oh, by the way, no U.S. intelligence personnel were present. A week after he gave that information to the Egyptians and they passed it on to us, he recanted. And the Defense Intelligence Agency immediately put a burn notice out on it. George Tennant didn't bother to tell the secretary or me about that burn notice. So this is how we built an intelligence picture for a war with Iraq and convinced the American people or a significant majority of them we should go to war. That's what they're doing right now with regard to Iran. So in in the context of Iran, then, what kind of things are we talking about? So we've seen, what do we see? We see Nikki Haley standing up um, when she was UN ambassador with all those missiles that they said they found in Yemen that were being given to the Houthis that were Iranian-made missiles. So that was, that was one piece that I could see sort of fitting in here as intelligence that's being used to build a case against Iran. What else are we talking about? Well, we're talking about everything that Iran is. It, it, this is a fascinating thing for me as a military professional because this was my bailiwick for almost a decade in terms of strategy and planning. We are looking at Iran not doing things on their own initiative, but essentially capitalizing on a series of U.S. mistakes, big strategic mistakes. 
We're looking at Iran being very active in the region because of U.S. errors. We're looking at Russia, too, being active in the region. The first error was the Iraq war invasion in the first place because what we did was put Iran in the catbird seat. We made them the hegemon in the Gulf by destroying the balance of power. Second thing was Syria, where we invited the Russians in, the Turks in, and a host of others, Hezbollah, Iran, and made Iran triumphant in Syria along with Russia and Bashar al-Assad. Then we took our eyeball off of Iraq significantly, and what we have now in Iraq is essentially a, an Iranian-influenced government in Baghdad. We have a war in Yemen that a boy king in Saudi Arabia who's one of the most brutal rulers in the world that is being lost by Saudi Arabia in which the United States is enmeshed hip and glove with Mohammed bin Salman. We have at the same time him destroying the GCC, the Gulf Cooperation Council, at the under, other end of his country by his assault on Qatar and inviting the Turks into Qatar to defend Qatar and to take Iran's side. So Iran is doing all these nefarious things that the administration is claiming they're doing, but they're doing them in a default. They're doing them because of our strategic errors. If they weren't doing them, I would think Iran was idiotic because it's in their interest to do them. Well, so, so this is what's really fascinating about the way this debate has gone. Um, the debate has evolved from the Bush administration arguing that we need to worry about Iranian nukes when there weren't any. And so you could argue that, you know, back then I worried this was the Bush administration trying Iraq again. So, you know, there are no nukes. They're going to try to tell us they're nukes. Now that didn't work. Um, Obama sort of slow rolled it and said, well, I'm still worried about nukes, but let's do the JCPOA to prevent the nukes. And now you have the Trump administration. But the, here's the th question for you is I now see because of all these errors, I think conservatives, hawks, primacists, whatever you want to call them, can actually just argue for war with Iran without um, calling on any hidden baloney or false intelligence, right? You can just say, look, Iran is too powerful now. Let's, we have to go to war, right? I mean, what false – I don't see them making false – I mean, there's a – they, they may argue a little bit too hard that Iran still wants nukes, but that's a question you can't answer. You don't have to lie about that. You know, it's a uh, – I think it's a slight mischaracterization of the second Bush administration. The very last principles meeting, the only person voting for use of force against Iran was Dick Cheney. And George Bush's alleged comment at the end of that was because everyone else had voted against it, including Bob Gates. Uh, okay, there you have it. <laughs> We're not going to have a war. But I'd also point out that Cheney's policy of we don't talk to evil, and that's the way Cheney summed it up with regard to Iran, actually took 200 centrifuges which is what Iran had when we first started and let them have 5,000. So it wasn't a very good policy. Whether or not the JCPOA, JCPOA was the best policy or not is still debatable. I understand that. I worked on it for a long time. I talked to a lot of Israeli defense and intelligence people. Bibi Netanyahu was just excoriating them during the election because they were for the agreement. He's right. They were for the agreement. I think that was the most telling moment for me is when most of them said they were for the agreement, some of them grudgingly and some of them happily for the agreement. So I think that agreement did what we wanted to do. But to your main point, if, if I were looking at Iran right now and I were on Mars and there were no po politics involved, I wouldn't be doing what we're doing. If I were worried about Iran, I'd also be worried about Saudi Arabia, in fact, far more than Iran, 
But if I were worried about Iran, what I'd be doing is what some people recommended, some very smart people recommended well into the period of the second Bush administration, and that was soft power. The Iranian regime is one of the most corrupt regimes on earth. For example, a report just came out from the Samnani Institute at Salt Lake City, University of Utah, that is entitled, Where's My Oil? Now, the Semnani Institute is run by a fellow by the name of Khosrow Semnani, who's an Iran-American himself, billionaire, manages most of the nuclear waste in the Western United States. That's how he made his money, nuclear physicist. His group studied the Iranian oil business and discovered that they were stealing. This is they being the, the Ayatollah, the Quds Force, the IRGC leadership, and so forth, and other Iranians. They were stealing somewhere between $500 billion and a trillion dollars out of the Iran oil industry every year. Not going to hospitals, not going to roads, not going to anything beneficial for the Iranian people. Why not expose that? Why not make sure that you have a good campaign of what we used to call black ops, and you use that soft power and you take advantage of what's happening right now with the Iranians? Polls in Iran show that for the first time, the lower one-third of Iranian society, which has always been staunchly supportive of the theocracy, very hardcore Islamist, you might say, supportive of the Ayatollahs, is now falling apart in terms of its support for the theocracy. So why not take advantage of that? Why not let the Iranian people, as they did in 53, take over, as they did in 79? You know, we missed 79 when the Shah fell. Had we been smart, had our intelligence been good, we could have moved in and we could have helped the Democrats in that revolution and maybe we could have overcome the Ayatollah and democracy might have come to Iran. Now's the big question. Do we really want democracy to come to Iran? We certainly don't want it to come to Saudi Arabia or to Qatar or to the United Arab Emirates or any of those other places where we deal with dictators every day and love it. Do we really want democracy in Iran? I think we have just touched upon the American sore point in Iran. We do not really want democracy. We want stability and predictability yes. and cheap oil, right? I mean, yeah. But those are the things that this administration's policies are pushing very hard against. I mean, they say that they want, they, they certainly say that they want democracy in Iran, but, but more to the point, the sanctions that they have put on are making things harder in general for the sort of the average Iranian, they're actually making it better for the IRGC and all yes. those corrupt people look, because it's easier to skim off. Look at what's happening with the floods right now. This gentleman I was just talking about, talking about Khosrow Simnani, he sends a ship to Iran with supplies, humanitarian aid and so forth each year, gets it through OFAC, Office of Foreign Assets Control, no problems. We've just had 70, let's see, 70 percent of the annual rainfall in Iran fell in 13 days. They have 4,500 communities that are flooded. They have something like 1,300 villages and what we would call small towns and cities that are flooded. We can't even, he can't even get his ship to sail now. Here's another place. The American people don't hate us, or the Iranian people don't hate us. This is another place where George W. Bush, the BAM earthquake in 2003, I said to Secretary Powell, we need to help. That's terrible. There are thousands of people buried, dead. We need to help. He said, don't worry, Larry. The president's already ordered it. And we had firefighters and rescue dogs and everything else going to BAM in Iran. 
What's the Trump administration doing for these flood victims? As far as I can tell, nothing. Plus, they're not letting Cosero sail his ship. So this is crazy. This is crazy. The people we ought to be siding up to and helping and supporting are the Iranian people who basically would like a good life, just like anybody else in the world. And maybe we could uh, you know, have another green revolution that would work. Um, the question that I, I guess I wonder about a lot is you, you have said that you believe that the administration is strongly pushing for a war in Iran. And I hear a lot of other people say that. Um, I'm not so sure. And so I want to push you on this a little bit. Um, no, I'm not either. I think Trump wants negotiations. I think the president wants a Kim Jong-un moment with Rouhani and Zarif. But I think the people arrayed around him who are now operating increasingly in the void of his attention, want war, particularly John Bolton. You know, that's actually an excellent segue into our last question, um, which is I would like to talk a little bit personnel here, because um, one point you and a lot of others have made is that Trump has really empowered um, and elevated people uh, with disturbing foreign policy histories, right? So Trump is meant to be this outsider president with a new foreign policy. But what he's done is he's brought back Elliot Abrams to handle Venezuela. He's brought back John Bolton as his national security advisor. Um, there's a really great profile, you mentioned it earlier, of John Bolton in this week's New Yorker, which paints this picture of Bolton as a hawk, basically trying to overcome Trump's own impulses in order to make him more interventionist. Um, how, how big an influence do we think personnel really has here? You're talking about what I teach now. <laughs> the framework for analysis that I use with my students starts with people. It uses international relations, domestic politics, resources, all the other elements of strategy, but it starts with people. Um, we talk about the sociology of the decision-making team. We talk about the chemistry of the decision-making team. We talk about the different members of the team. And this Dexter Filkins piece is extraordinary, and I wish... I, I, I wish Dexter had written it before I ended my semester because I would love my, for my students to read it because that's what he talks about. The process, for example, the process with all the presidents since World War II with some massaging here by, by a Nixon and a Kissinger and some by a Carter and a Brzezinski. But basically, it has evolved to interagency working groups, deputies group, principals group, and the National Security Council. This all allows for deliberation. It all allows for the president to be presented with the best advice at the final moment before he makes his decisions. That's not happening. And Dexter points that out. It's just chaos. And when chaos occurs, people who know the chaos, who are, as Richard Haas used to say, bureaucratic entrepreneurs, can go in and manipulate that chaos and get what they want. And that's precisely what John Bolton is doing right now. Yeah. In, in chaos, the one issue sort of people who always are pointing in the same direction and sort of ruthlessly working to get what they want, um, they tend to be the only people who get anything done. And I, I, you know, I was surprised that he hired Bolton in the first place because he seemed so at odds with Trump's general vibe, as far as you could tell what that was. And I was sort of, I think on this very podcast many moons ago, I, you know, someone asked the question, what, what's next? And I just said, war. <laughs> <laughs> and and I've been a little surprised it's taken this long, frankly. Um, Trump, you know, I think Trump's I think, standing in the way. Right, there's chaos standing away. There's Trump standing away. But but I I do worry still that we've got enough time left for for something to happen with Venezuela. Um, I mean, Bolton's starting to tweet in Spanish a lot, which really I don't know. It's either 
clever and good soft power or it's really disturbing. But Iran is obviously the other big one. You know, there there's, is an interesting anecdote in that same article about North Korea, which basically accounts um, the story of how Bolton pushed Trump and pushed him too far. So he's not always been successful at managing the boss, even in that chaos. Basically, there are, there are other people who used to work in, in that space who told the reporter that Trump eventually decided partly that he was going to meet with Kim Jong-un, partly because Bolton kept pushing him on the idea of conflict and of war. Um, so, I mean, so I think the best case scenario here is that Bolton, again, oversteps his limits on Iran and Trump actually pushes back on it. But I just don't know how likely that is to happen. And he's got to be tiring of firing people, I would assume. I mean, maybe not. Maybe it's his forte. Maybe he loves to fire people. Uh, if that's the case, then uh, I'll cheer when Bolton goes. But you have got a situation now where, as one person put it to me the other day, all the adult leadership has left. You know, you got Mattis gone, McMaster gone, Kelly gone. There's, And I have to hand it to Trump in many respects if I were dealing with Jim Mattis, and Jim Mattis stonewalled him, as Dexter points out on several occasions in that article, again and again, I'd have gotten rid of Mattis too. I mean, I don't want someone else making it so difficult for me to execute my decisions, so I'd get rid of Mattis. But look what he did. He didn't just get rid of Mattis. He left a sycophant, a functionary in charge. So basically, that's what he's done everywhere. I hate to say this. I was over there this morning for an, a ceremony he officiated at. But Michael Pompeo is another person who's going to do exactly what Trump tells him to do. So he's very comfortable with state now, I think. He's very comfortable with defense because there's no opposition there. And when you've got $750 billion, I don't care. You can put up opposition. Um, so he's thinned the crowd. And there's no one around anymore to really object. Um, Bolton knows that, and Bolton knows how to flow into all these cracks and crevices. But how much longer, your point, is Bolton going to last if he is doing this in contravention of what Trump's basic instincts tell him he ought to be doing? Well, uh, you know, the, I think the Washington Examiner covered this month has, uh, calls it Trump's acting trip as all the acting secretaries. <laughs> so maybe we will soon have an acting national security advisor. I'm afraid we're out of time. That's all we have time for today. So thank you so much for joining us. Um, and thanks to our producer, Cecil Sherman, and to everybody at home for listening. If you like the show, please leave us a good review on iTunes or wherever you find your podcasts. We'll see you next time. 